Welcome to Fundamental Fairness, a podcast about bridging the gap between fintech and financial inclusion. Brought to you by Camino Financial with your host, Sean Salas. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Fundamental Fairness. And today's episode is titled Capitalism 2.0, Reimagining Our Economy with Javier Salas. I want to mentally prepare you that this introduction will be long because Javier has a lot to say thanks to his vast experience. Javier Sale is managing partner of Impact Master Holdings and venture partner at Fenway Summer Ventures. He is chairman of the board of a private equity-owned financial services firm and serves on the board of trustees of the Nature Conservancy and the Organization of American States Pan-American Development Foundation. Sade also holds seats on the Global Board of Advisor of DocuSign, the Corporate Social Responsibility Board of Univision, and the Board of Advisors of Harvard University's Arthur Rock Center of Entrepreneurship, of which Camino Financial is a proud fellow. He is founding member of Fast Company's Impact Council and a member of the National Association of Corporate Directors and Latino Corporate Directors Association. Previously, Sade was one of the highest ranking Latinos during the Obama administration and the SBA programs, and he oversaw and invested over $128 billion. Let me repeat that. $128 billion with a capital B into more than 300,000 companies. Woo! That's crazy. Before his White House appointment, he spent time at organizations that include McKinsey and Company, Booz Allen and Hamilton, Bridgewater Associates, Global Emerging Markets, and Abbott Laboratories. Just so you have context, that's probably the blue chip of blue chip. And if that wasn't enough, he also holds an MBA from Harvard Business School, an MS from Illinois Institute of Technology, and a BS from Purdue University. So without further ado, welcome, Javier. Well, whoever you were talking about sounds pretty damn cool on paper. (laughs) And hi, everybody. Thank you for joining. I can't see you, but hello. (laughs) Great. Well, well, thank you for joining. And Javier, one of the things I love about you is you do like getting straight into business. So I want to get straight into business and have some real talk about the economy. And I want to get started. The NASDAQ is trading at all-time highs. The Dow has almost recovered most of its losses since March, all while unemployment rates in June is 11.1%. Yeah, granted, a little bit better than what people expected, but over three times, close to three times where it was in March, with 17.7 million in unemployed, right? That's far from the roughly 4% unemployment rate in March. So. I see a disconnect here, right? I see a disconnect in the financial markets recovering, right? And yet, you know, the fundamentals of our economy as measured at least by unemployment are still nowhere close to what I would consider recovered. So can you help me and our audience understand the disconnect in today's financial markets and our economy? I think you laid it out really well. It is a vast canyon, not a gap, between what's happening in the markets and what's happening in real life. And I think one, you know, one statistic that I think you left out is, I think it's over 45 million people in America have filed for jobless claims. 
over the last three months. And you have four crises, four crises happening at once. You got a health crisis, you got an economic crisis, you got a social justice crisis. Mm -hmm. And not yet, but I think this is where you're going with your point, a financial crisis. And I think that disconnect that you're talking about can be explained with thinking about it in three buckets. One is that if you think about what happened in 2008 mm-hmm. and the financial crisis, that situation was pretty contained to financial institutions, their balance sheet not being safe and sound and all this stuff. And about $800 billion was pumped into the financial system. And the mode of distribution of that crisis was much more contained. And the genesis of it was much more specific. It wasn't four huge crises happening in synchrony that we had now. Today, so that was 800 billion, something like, you know, at the height of the crisis, we were losing 800,000 jobs, right? We've been losing 10 million jobs for the last four months, like just to put it in context. The Federal Reserve, when you add it all up, Federal Reserve, Treasury, and the SBA, I'm sure we're going to get into the SBA program soon. Mm-hmm. In total, the commitments to print and or backstop and or lend and or whatever, all together is about $7 trillion with a T. That's more than eight times what the financial crisis was. So to answer your question with math, the reason you're not seeing stocks plunge and debt markets go into a spiral mm-hmm. is because you have the only institution, not in the United States, in the world that can actually backstop all of this with facilities that actually hold the economy together. They're buying, you know, corporate bonds. They're buying junk bonds. They're mm-hmm. literally, they're doing everything in their, they're taking out everything in their arsenal and throwing it at it. And what the markets are reacting to is the fact that, well, the full faith and credit of the United States is essentially propping up the market, but then music is going to stop. Yeah, so let's. I want to break that down, and I'm going to try to explain this in layman's terms so that everyone, including myself, at different points in time, that get jumbled with, you know, what the <laughs> yeah. Fed is doing and how that impacts asset value in the economy and who are the winners and losers. So let's focus on obviously there's monetary stimulus and there's fiscal stimulus. Obviously, we've, you've alluded to the fact that fiscal stimulus is proportionally much larger than what we saw in 2008. I mean, there's an argument to be made that the government may be doing what they're supposed to do. And we'll put a pin on that for a second. Yeah. And we'll talk about the effectiveness of that fiscal stimulus. And then there's the Fed, right? And the Fed, of course, one of the biggest tools in their toolkit is their ability to change, right? The rate at which effectively banks in the world borrows money, right? And when you bring that rate down to pretty much 0%, what that will effectively do for many of you, and and the best way, the best analogy is when interest rates go down, what happens to property value? It usually goes up despite a potential economic downturn because it's cheaper to borrow and therefore that influences demand in the property value. And a similar dynamic happens also in the purchase of stock. And the asset value preservation of assets in the financial markets, because 
effectively those assets are, I'll describe the asset value of that stock in a way is artificially preserved because that discount rate is lower, right? Which effectively increases the net present value of the future cash flows that those assets generate. But here's the issue. That playbook worked in 2008, right? We needed that injection of confidence, that stabilization financial market so that the fundamentals of the markets kind of figured themselves out. But the issue here is we still have a lot of people unemployed. The productive value of these assets have not increased. Maybe they've in fact probably gone down. The supply chain, especially with the resurgence of COVID, is still not only in disruptive states, but that's probably not getting better anytime soon. And so when I look at the financial markets and the fundamentals of the economy, yeah, granted, I recognize the Fed for preserving value artificially, but something tells me that's not enough. In fact, something tells me that that's moving the ball away from what really matters, which is the productive value of these assets. So here's my question. I wanted to lay that out for everybody. Here's my question. Mm -hmm. Let's assume for two seconds that this playbook works. For two seconds, we should question whether that works. Let's assume this, the same playbook we used in 2008 works today, okay? Right? Who are the winners and losers of using that playbook? Right, because that's going to preserve the asset value of a sum. But my guess yep. is not everybody. So, who are the winners and losers of that? So, that there's a lot to unpack there, and I think you broke it down pretty well. This will, no matter what lens you use to look at it, benefit people who own things, who own assets. I mean, most people in this call probably hold stocks. You know, on the one side. They may be having all kinds of problems with the PLs in their business because, you know, if they own a restaurant, they're selling ha- at best half of what they sold before. But if you own a stock, you're in good shape. And that's just at the micro level. But at the macro level, which I think is where you're going, the gaps which have become incredibly apparent that we all knew existed and now have a magnifying glass on them have potentially gotten exacerbated. You know, if you look at what happened in 2008, the genesis of that was excess risk in the housing market and the mode of distribution of that crisis was actually predictable. Mm-hmm. You know, bonds that collateralized the loans were going to fail. The counterparties were not going to have the money. So you kind of knew what the kind of the, how the glass was going to crack and you were able to actually prop it up. And even back then, there was a lot of blowback from Main Street going, well, why the hell are you bailing out Bank of America, Wells Fargo, Goldman Sachs, when we're losing all, all these jobs and all these small businesses closed down? Mm-hmm. This is potentially much, much bigger in terms of that Main Street blowback. And part of that you're seeing on the streets of America every single day, the tip of the spear being the police brutality and all the things you're seeing on the street, you know, playing out in the streets of America are a symptom of a much bigger problem, which is that there is two Americas. Mm -hmm. And really, it's the world. There are two worlds. There's the world for the, let's just call it 1%, because that's easy to visualize. There's the world for the 1% and the world for everybody else. And the higher you are in the 1%, right? If you're at 0.5%, if you're the 0.1%, or you're like Bezos, 
the 0.000001%, the higher you are, the better the world is for you. And I think that all this stuff that is happening and all the stimulus that you're seeing and a version of this you saw with the PPP, the, the loan program that the Treasury and SBA stood up, you may end up driving a bigger wedge into this dichotomy between the have and the have nots. And you said something very interesting, you know, which is this put a magnifying glass on something that already existed. So when we think about the winners and losers, winners being those that have assets, right? Likely people that are in the top 1%, right? Or the top 0.0001%, right? And by the way, you didn't say this, but I'm going to go ahead and say this. The people, the, the others, the have-nots, the losers, unfortunately, in this scenario, are more likely to be black and brown. Let's just call it spade a spade, yep. right? And maybe we're seeing some of that frustration manifesting itself in the reemergence of the Black Lives Matter movement. So this already existed. Are we on the same page there? This already existed. This has just magnified what could be a broken system. Zero question that the 400 years of oppression our Black brothers and sisters have felt, it has changed. Slavery no longer exists, but there's a system that and by system, I mean a financial system, a healthcare system, an education system that continues to create a gap. And that gap is almost, for different reasons, analogous to the Hispanic community, which, by the way, combined, just to give you a, a data, to give the folks that are listening to this thing a data point, combined, the African-American and Latino community are about 30% of the population, 100 million-ish of 330 million. And by the best guess out of the data that came out of the, the SBA recently on PPP, the, even though people didn't check boxes about ethnicity or race, you can piece together that only about 3% of so far $522 billion, 3% went to black and brown small businesses. Mm. Again, they're 30% of the population, but you're going to tell me, well, are they 30% of the small businesses? Actually, they're 27% of the small businesses. So mm -hmm. you're still way underrepresented. And you're going to go, well, why did that happen? Which I think is the point of this talk and why we need to reimagine, reimagine capitalism. I'm, you know, just back to the markets for a second, the original thing you were talking about. Milton Friedman, very famous economy in, the in 1970, September 1970, wrote an article in the New York Times in which he mentioned something called maximizing shareholder value and the primacy of the shareholder in everything a corporation does. Mm -hmm. I was 50 years ago, almost to the day, in a couple of months, it's going to be 50 years. That profit maximization as the sole purpose of a company is what has shaped our economy mm -hmm. since. And I, I know we haven't yet started talking about what capitalism should look like. Yeah. But there's a reason why commercial endeavors and the productive use of capital, which is actually the definition of capitalism, looks the way it looks like. Because companies, and these are you know, the very largest to the very smallest, are focused on essentially one thing, making a profit. And that has translated into quarterly profits, right? So yeah. not only are you only Short focusing... Term. 
profit, short-termism and all that stuff. So then where we are is a very, I think I would argue a very bad place and actually value destroying place, but it's no surprising. That's what we've been doing with the economy and our productive capacity for 50 years and forgetting anything else. Yeah. And you said something critical. You said a lot of things that were critical. One thing that I want to hone in on is I would argue, because I am a capitalist, that long-term view of capitalism will, in my mind, acknowledge the need to build a strong middle-class economy to bring up people within our economy. But the, the issue that I think is happening in this market is the short-termism, uh, if that's the term, that's being applied to profit creation. And that is what I think gives a lot of very smart people, because I think they are smart and they know how to make a profit, blindsided by the opportunity, the economic opportunity, I would say, mm -hmm. in investing in these other underserved markets that we're talking about. Another way of putting it is, and I want to get your sense on this, or let me just ask you the question. Do you think today's capitalism is sustainable if we continue to turn a blind eye to the have-nots? No, zero. Even from no. a profit standpoint, even no. from a capitalistic, I'm, I'm selfish, all I care about is turning a profit, profit standpoint. If you're um, maximizing value as the sole purpose actually does not maximize value. There's a paradox. I'll give you two examples. One example is the fact that there is all kinds of data. This goes back to Jim Collins' books and things like that, that looked at companies who overtly were focused on more than just profit. Today, they're called socially responsible, impact capitalism, social entrepreneurship, companies with a mission. And they found that to accretive shareholder value, 6x. Mm -hmm than those that were solely focused on turning a profit. I'll give you another example, more recent than what I said, and that is stock buybacks. And I don't want to blow everybody's brains on this call, but it's a trick that public companies use to prop up their stocks. Essentially, if you think about what a company does, which is a micro version of what an economy does, is that it turns, tries to turn a dollar into a dollar and one cent with productive use of resources, and that's usually people, mm -hmm. money, and to some extent, manufacturing and natural resources. That's becoming harder and harder. Mm -hmm. So what companies have been doing is that they're using their profits, and instead of paying it back to shareholders as dividends, mm -hmm. or in reinvesting in their businesses, which is kind of what happens in the venture world and in your world, Sean, is that the reason all these smaller, fast-growth companies get so much capital is because they're using that capital to productive uh, for productive terms. Exactly. So share buybacks have zero productive use for the economy except to finish that thought. What they end up doing is they in the absence of being able to create that productive value, what do they do? What, they buy, yeah, they buy back their own stock, which means that the number of shares in the float decreases, but the value remains the same. So what happens to the share price? It goes up. A lot of what you're seeing, and just to put this in perspective, since the financial crisis, something like $2 trillion with a T has been spent by Fortune 2000 companies, the largest 2000 in the US, 
buying back their stock. I'll give you a more interesting example. IBM. IBM spent, I think over that same period, $140 billion buying their own stock. If you Google what the market cap of IBM is today, it's about $106 billion. So mm-hmm. put that in perspective. They took $140 billion over 10 years, bought back their own stock, and the company's worth less. But to your point, there are all kinds of reasons why companies should be focused on more than shareholder value. And that is, from a purely capitalistic perspective, mm-hmm. it creates value. Right. Yeah. In the case of the ESG is a term that a lot of people use, environmental, social, and governance. On the environmental side, people pay a premium, you know, look at Ben and Jerry's and Patagonia, two companies mm-hmm. that most people know. Companies that are rooted in mission, rooted in social good. Both of those companies literally charge a 300% premium to everybody else. And the products are essentially, I mean, Ben and Jerry's is great ice cream, mm-hmm. but it shouldn't be worth 300% more per ounce than other ice creams. The reason people pay that premium is because they're not putting hormones in cows. They care about the environment. Yep. So yep. there's an economic argument. There. And then on the S, which is what you were at, what you were pointing to earlier, S, which has to do with brown and black people participating more equitably in the economy, women still earning, you know, whatever it is, 58 cents to the dollar. If you're a brown woman, it's 51 cents to the dollar. Well, shoot. Math is math. If you get everybody to participate at the right levels and access capital at the right levels and everything for the most part being equal, regardless of what you look like, where you come from, are you religious and who you love, of course, you're going to make more money. So you're seeing a lot of that today. Some of it platitudes. You're seeing all the companies out there saying, oh, we care about this stuff. We're going to put, you know, we need to incentivize action. And and. I want to get into that, Javier. So I just want to first summarize this first part because we're almost 30 minutes into this conversation and we still haven't talked about capitalism 2.0. But the reason why is because I wanted you, the audience, our listeners, to really contextualize what capitalism 1.0 looks like. How the inefficiencies of that capitalism, especially in the short-term profit gain and a little bit of artificial observations, right? A little bit of hocus pocus here may work, right? To sustain certain downturns in the economy, but doesn't necessarily increase the productive value of these assets over the long term. And so in a way, think about those hocus pocus tools a little bit as a way to preserve asset value in the short term, but still puts the long-term value of these assets at risk, unless we unlock opportunities with the have-nots and the math is simple. So so with that said, I want us to now officially segue into Capitalism 2.0. This week's episode of Fundamental Fairness, Capitalism 2.0, Reimagining Our Economy with Javier Said is brought to you by Camino Financial. So big, broad question. In your mind, Javier, can you define what capitalism 2.0 is for you? We're starting to see it around the margins. The business roundtable, what fintech, including your company, Sean, is attempting to do to the financial piping of America. Mission-driven investing in the fiduciary rule. 
you're starting to see around the margins this realization that shareholder primacy may be flawed. So if it's flawed, what does that mean? Well, it means that if you have a pool of candidates for a job that doesn't look like America, you're probably not trying hard enough to find talent. If you're choosing between two businesses and one is located in East LA and the other one is in Westwood, well, the Westwood one is a lot easier to lend to because of all kinds of rules and regulations and things like that. But maybe that business in East LA, and I know you have some loans like this, Sean, yourself, that you've made is a more credit worthy loan if you look at it through the right lens. Environmental considerations, mm-hmm. which, by the way, the damage that we're doing to the environment, which is unequivocal and backed by data and science, overwhelmingly affects black and brown people more because where are the trash disposals? And, mm-hmm. you know, if you, if you look at the world, people that live next to the coast, well, yeah, they have pretty houses, but some of them live there because they have to fish, right? And they're the ones that are going to be more susceptible. So climate change and all this stuff happening with the environment affects people without means more. And in capitalism 2.0, you can create financial incentives and people will reward you with paying more for your products if you're doing right by things that matter to society. The environment, you know, racial equity, equal opportunity, and things that sound esoteric and kind of fluffy, kind of good for society, actually has been proven to make more money. And mm-hmm. you're seeing it. I mean, that's a kind of a long answer, non-answer answer, but you're actually seeing it around the margins and you're seeing what companies are doing now with the BLM situation. They're saying, oh, I'm going to throw $500 million at this, or I'm going to create a pathway for that, or still around the margins, but unequivocally, there's no putting the genie back in the bottle. Yeah. No, the it's, system it's- does not work, right? It works for, it works for me because I own stocks and I'm, I've been lucky enough to have built a good life, but it wouldn't work, it would have worked for me growing up, mm-hmm. right? And that lack of pathway for most people in America mm-hmm. is destroying to value creation. Yep. I hear you loud and clear. And so here's, if I had to oversimplify your answer, I think capitalism 2.0, it's still about maximizing value, productive value. I think the first part of that definition of capitalism is still holds true. But the second part of the definition, value for shareholders, I think should change to maximizing value for stakeholders. Stakeholders in and of itself is a broader definition of who we need to maximize value for. Mm-hmm. And so that will include shareholders, by the way. It needs to include shareholders, right? Because they are going to invest and help continue the beautiful productive value creation uh, that does happen in our economy. But it also has to include community stakeholders, which include black and brown communities. It needs to include our environment because if we're not helping our environment over the long term, we're just all going to die, literally. 
<laughs> and I think there's even other stakeholders that we can even discuss about, which I want to get into. So got it. Capitalism 2.0, understand it. Now I want to talk can about- I react, Can I react to something? Think about it this way. If those companies that spent $2 trillion buying their own stock back <laughs> would have increased wages, think, think about it this way, would have increased wages, a living wage, right? A situation that we don't have in America broadly. Yeah. That's sustainable. Anyway, that's just one example of, and something that doesn't cost having a sustainable workforce, which we don't have, because look at what happened in four months, literally four months. Mm. In our economy, we haven't even started seeing the pain yet because we have had it propped up significantly by a lot of instrumentalities of the federal government. That music is going to stop. People are going to start defaulting on loans and on rent. Anyway, I didn't want to derail you. No, no, no. I think they're all valid points. I appreciate the clarification. Okay. So now I'm going to put my capital, because it's still capitalism 2.0. So I want to get excited about the opportunity because I know there are a lot of people that invest money on this call and I want to get them excited about the opportunity. So what's the math behind measuring the opportunity of investing. In particular, we've talked about underserved communities, mm-hmm. that broader stakeholder definition. Um, so what's the math behind it? Help me measure the opportunity. I'll give you three markers. Mm-hmm. One marker, let's talk about the Latino, specifically the Latino market. Right. Five million plus minus small businesses that are Latino-owned or Latino catering. If they were to be capitalized at the same rate as the economy as a whole, mm-hmm. Our GDP would be two trillion with a T larger. Wow. So that's the size of just to give people context. That's the size of Brazil. We'd be a Brazil larger than we, we are today. Yep. This yep. Is yeah, I mean it's a it's a good way to put it. I mean, right now it would double. Think about it this way. Right now, Latinos contribute about two trillion to GDP. It would go to four trillion. If we would have been investing and capitalizing in people and small businesses at the same rate as the population. This is not a handout. This is not a favor. This is purely a, you're setting up a cupcake shop or you're setting up a rice and beans shop. Mm Money is money. money. If you can turn a 10% profit, I'll go with it with the rice and beans shop all day long because they haven't had the money yet. So that's one mark. Another marker is when you look at diversity in companies, at the board, at the C-level, you know, all throughout, study after study after study after study shows that more diversity delivers more return on invested capital, return on equity. This is, these are numbers. Catalyst, I'll give you an example. Catalyst, which is an organization that focuses on women in leadership roles, mostly putting women on boards. Mm. They did a study that found that when a company has two or more female directors, on the board, they return something like 20% more to shareholders. Mm. And there's no magic to that. If the magic is that more diverse point of view, starting with gender, creates better solutions, right? And it's backed by data. The third marker is investors. I think you mentioned in the introduction, I ran a, myself ran a program that was about $30 billion dollars that was essentially invested in small and medium-sized invest uh, private equity venture capital structure 
lending funds. And we did a study of our own program back into time. Just for context, there's been like 2,000 funds in America that have been uh, regulated under this program, SBIC. And we found that whenever there was a female or a minority in the check writing positions, the people that write with decision-making authority to write checks, they invested something like four times more into companies that were diverse. And wait, there's more. The returns were better. Furthermore, the National Association of Investment Companies, which is an association that has all these private equity and venture capital and structured lending funds that are managed majority minority owned, they've done studies with KPMG, with all kinds of people that show that diverse funds beat the benchmarks, venture capital benchmarks, private equity benchmarks, whatever benchmark you want to say, by non-insignificant margins. So there is mathematics, arithmetic. There's no language or uh, whatchamacallit, there's no uh, language problems with math, right? Everybody understands a number. The numbers speak to the fact that we are leaving money on the table. Yeah. And leaving money on the table, last time I checked, is bad for capitalism. I don't know. That's just me talking, right? So, you know, I just got a question, and we're going to get into live questions in a bit, but I think we need to address this question right now because it's important. Our good mutual friend, Beatriz Acevedo, founder of MeToo, has a really important question which is decision makers have this data about Latinos and women and diversity, but yet they still don't change. Help Beatriz and me understand why is this the case? Beatriz's question is dead on. And I have wondered about this question for many years, including when I was a graduate student where I wrote a paper on it and got published. Look, I think it's brain damaging that we have all this data on equivocal math and still no action. Like, who gives a F about the data when there's no action? Stop telling me about the data, do something. I personally think there's a really strong force called inertia in the physical world. If you took physics at some point in your high school life. Mm-hmm. And inertia, I think, shapes the behavior of institutions. And the reason it shapes the behavior of institutions is because of a preservation of power kind of reflex. And that preservation of power, when you you know peel the onion and make it naked, as the BLM protests have done on the streets of America, but now you're seeing it in boardrooms and everywhere, is that there is a structurally mismatched and I'll be even blunter as there's a structural racism that runs through all of the power structures in America. And that even though somebody that benefits from all the power they have, mm-hmm. let's call a spade a spade, white men benefit from all this power, and they may have all the right intentions in the world, inertia precludes them from giving up power. Mm-hmm. So. Whenever, and I think you saw this, not to get political, but you saw this in 2016 with the election of Donald Trump. Mm. He fired up a base that was seeing the rise of an America that looks very different to what it looked like in the beginning as a zero-sum game. Well, if brown people are winning, that means I'm going to be losing. 
And that's not the argument. So I think the first step in all this, I think we're living through right now. And that is like, holy moly, this is bad and the system doesn't work. And, and Javier, I actually want to push back on one thing you said. Don't yeah. get wrong. Look, we don't have to get red versus blue. Let's talk red, white, and blue, okay? Yep. And there's some fundamentals around what the agenda of the policymakers are, the, our representatives should be, so that we avoid a zero-sum game. So while yep. I do want to avoid the red versus blue, let's talk red, white, and blue, because I do think we should get a little political here, because I think one of the critical roles in capitalism 2.0, working, building the inertia, is putting the right people in the seats that they need to be that are pushing the agenda that benefits capitalism 2.0. So what should we be looking for in policymakers? How should we be vetting them? Yeah, yeah. Part of our playbook. Let's talk about PPP because this was very, this intersects very directly with what you do for a living in fintech. Define PPP very quickly for those that don't know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The Paycheck Protection Program in total was about $660 billion that was basically put aside for Treasury and SBA to backstop loans for small businesses. So far, out of the $660 billion, about $525 has been lent, 4.9 million loans. Actually, was looking at this uh, before. The average loan size was $107,000. If you look at what... Let me back up for a second. So... There is no way, even with the smartest, best intention policymakers, that you were going to pump $660 billion into the economy and things were not going to break. You know, there's been something like 35 changes to the rules and it's been very confusing. And fintech companies like yours have been wanting to participate for a good reason. And that is that you touch on the smallest businesses, which were the most vulnerable. In looking at the data, in looking at policy, when one thing that the SBA did right was for the first time opened up the aperture of who could participate in putting out the money for the program. Mm-hmm. The problem was that it may, may have been a little too late. Out of five, out of 5,400 lenders, 20 were fintech companies, give or take. Mm-hmm. And the 20 fintech companies, let me look at my notes, put out $4.7 billion in 160,000 loans out of the billion out of 5,400 loans. But this is the statistic that I want to focus on, Sean, and where policy really is almost dispositive of what happens. Mm. The average loan size that fintechs did was $28,000. And that tells you that the businesses that got those loans were much smaller than what banks and other larger institutions were doing. Why does that matter for policy? I'll tell you why that's matter for policy, specifically the black and brown-owned businesses. All of them, for the most part, not all of them, the vast majority of them are tiny. They need tiny amounts of capital. They're small businesses. They're micro-businesses. Exactly. And you didn't need Robitussin, right? You needed aspirin. And what the solution that was crafted very quickly, and to put things in perspective, the SBA on a good year puts out $25 billion of loans. In four months, it put out 30 times that amount. So if you do math, they were running at a hundred times the capacity, you know, just insane numbers. Mm. But it tells you that if there would have been maybe some more forward looking policymakers and things like that, they would have realized, well, shoot, 
there's this whole crop of interesting alternative lenders, like Camino Financial, there are many and several, that could put this money to work really fast, really quickly to the businesses that need it the quickest. And that happened, but not as effectively as it could have happened. If you look at what, what's going to probably happen with forbearance in the mortgage market, it's going to be much different than it was before. But at some point, people are going to start, start skipping on rent. Yeah. And even if you don't have a mortgage, you live somewhere, you're going to start skipping on rent. And the person that owns that place where the renter lives has a mortgage, typically. And yeah. in the case of somewhere in the South Bronx or where I'm from, San Juan, Puerto Rico, or all these places, the music's going to stop really quickly. So how do you create policies that would allow for the most vulnerable communities to ensure people don't lose their homes, people don't lose their mortgages? So yeah, policy seems esoteric, but it sets the stage for a lot of these uh, things in the economy to function. Yeah, and there's a lot of blind spots, and I think we're seeing that in real time. Great. Well, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that. So I'm going to go ahead and bring up Tanya Chavez as our first person to ask a question live. Hey, I'm Tanya Chavez. I'm part of Camino Financial. Very glad to hear you. Well, I have a question regarding current capitalism and how it will change. Currently, we are very dependent on a specialized and affordable workforce of China. <laughs> but at the same time, our country and many other countries their relationship with these communist countries get intense. And even their people are protesting against new law enforcement that limit their freedom. That's a very, very difficult scenario for this new movement of capitalism. So I would like to hear what's your view on how this capitalist 2.0 will deal with this tense scenario. That's a really good question. Well, look, China just last year passed, even though their GDP is smaller, they passed us by something called power purchasing parity. So their economy, in essence, is bigger than ours. And it's going to be much, much bigger in 20 years. They're going through some serious issues now because of what you're talking about, Tanya, which is that because they were focused on being the manufacturing capital of the world, the way to be competitive to do that was to keep labor, you know, labor prices low. And that, as has been evident, is not sustainable. So now they're looking at inside their borders growth. So you're seeing a lot of unrest. And how that affects us, I guess, to your point, is that all of the very cheap stuff you buy on Amazon or Walmart is brought to you courtesy of this, you know, abuse of labor in, in low cost places. It's not just China. That is not sustainable. And we're seeing the blowback to that in real time. So that's by far the most important relationship, bilateral relationship the United States has. We need a lot more time to talk about it. But yeah, it's a really good point, Tanya. Yeah, great. The next question, we're going to go straight into someone else that, that you know, Javier. Uh, <laughs> Kenny Salas, my co-founder and twin brother. Kenny, go ahead. Hey, good morning, guys. Javier, thanks for joining this podcast. I we really appreciate it. My question is, uh, what role does K-12 education play in the wealth gap in America? And uh, what should be the government's long-term strategy to bridge that gap? Jesus, these questions are, are huge questions. Hi, Kenny. That's where it starts. 
And if you listen to the biggest successes economically of our community, like Jose Feliciano or Robert Smith or the CEO of Pfizer, whose name escapes me, who's an African amazing African American guy, is that somebody plucked them out of obscurity and put them on the right path early in their education. And that, you know, right now that the educational system in America is funded by, for the most part, property taxes. And as you know, all you have to do is go to a school in a high property tax area and a school in a lower property tax area. You go to that school. So there's a very clear, again, this is one of those systems that doesn't seem racist, right? That seems kind of, generally, that's how the system is. Well, no, if you really peel the onion, it's set up in a way that more resources go to richer neighborhoods. And that is not right because you have talent is distributed equally, opportunity is not. So if you buy that talent is distributed equally, you should distribute opportunity as well. So, you know, I think the education people are having their hands full. As you know, the president is encouraging universities and schools to reopen in the fall. Everybody's scared of doing it for obvious reasons, the pandemic, but it's also going to be costly. I just heard a public university system, not University of California, but a big, I think it was the University of Texas, that said that to reopen all the equipment and all the things they needed to, they need to invest in to make it happen, testing students every two days, plexiglass everywhere, tens of millions of dollars. Somebody's going to pay for that. Online uh, constructs, while effective, you know, most of us that are in this call went to college. Part of the learning experience is being with people. So it's a, it's a very bad non-answer answer, but I think that is a big cause of the inequities we face. It's educational inequity. Great. I think we're going to have time for one last question. Francisco Arceo. Hey, friends. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. You know, I, I'm a big fan of capitalism. I'll just say that. Uh, red, white, and blue. And one of the things I think about a lot is just the mathematical incentive structures that exist, right? And, and you mentioned it before, very, very pointedly. And then when you think about it from P&L standpoint and the way that corporations and entities operate, right, where they have to meet incentives of their shareholders, right, which have dividends and other financial structures where they have to meet metrics, right? Those incentive structures have some time horizon. In what way can the new capitalism work where that incentive structure isn't so myopic, right? Because that's the challenge that I, in my opinion, see as people looking at the short run, like investing in oil and gas, even though we have climate crisis impending, right? How do we balance those two things in a meaningful way? And, and just would love to hear about your thoughts on that. And thank you very much. Oh, that's an awesome, that's an awesome question. Yeah, metrics and goals or tax policy drives behavior. You're absolutely. And if you don't change those, well, it doesn't matter what we're talking about here. Go hug a tree. Who cares? Nobody's going to change behavior. You're seeing a lot of this in private markets. So venture capital and private equity funds raise money from institutional investors. But in, in reality, when you look at what an institutional investor is, in the case of California, if CalPERS is an investor in a venture capital fund, it looks like one entity, but in reality, they're representing the interest of 3 million people. And because you don't have the spotlight of 
a dividend policy or whatever else policy that requires you return money to your investors that are usually either mutual funds or hedge funds, you have more leeway to do things. It was the genesis of the buyout in the United States. The reason people started taking companies private was so that they could do things more long-term, right? Like private equity, that's a general argument of private equity, is that when you take the scrutiny of a public company investor out of the picture, you could focus on other metrics. But in in the case of public companies, dividend policies are set by shareholders, right? So you can argue that if the directors of a company choose to reduce the dividend by two pennies in a quarter, and that two pennies, if you do the math, you know, two pennies in an Apple stock really represents hundreds of millions of dollars, right? And they decide that with that hundred millions of dollars, they're going to raise the wages of their factory workers. It's hard for me to envision that that doesn't get a fair shake in the public markets. So to me, all of these metrics and policies there's nothing in stone. All of these systems we have were invented by us. They are constructs we create. Money doesn't exist, right? Money is a, is a construct we use to transfer and store value. All of these things are things we invented. So if we invented them once, we should be able to reinvent them. Really good questions, all of them. And I really enjoyed this. I don't, I don't know if we have time for more, but this is great. Unfortunately, we don't. And believe it or not, those were three of 23 questions that were submitted. So I did a terrible job posting <laughs> this fireside chat. I promise for those that tune in in the future that I will allocate the appropriate time to address many more questions than we were able to address. As you can imagine, we can be having this discussion for hours and hours, if not days. And so I want to thank Javier. Your knowledge is vast, your leadership is true, and I want to thank you for the contributions you've been making in our community. And I know you are trailblazing Capitalism 2.0. I want to follow you on your journey. So how can people follow you, Javier? Yeah, well, I don't know if you if you want to follow me, but if you want to follow what I'm doing, I'm pretty active. Uh, the social media platform I use most is LinkedIn to communicate. So anybody here, I don't think there's that many Javier Saves. There's a lot of Javier's, but not a lot of Javier Saves. Happy to take your invitation. I'm relatively visible. I, I like to write a lot. And sometimes I co-write articles with people. I would love to engage with all of, I mean, all of you. And I'm really happy to have had this conversation. Thank you for having me. And thank you everybody for tuning in. All right. Yeah, he co-writes on a few small publications like TechCrunch. Nothing you've heard of. All right, guys. Uh, thanks again, Javier. Thank you all for joining. Thank you all for staying this whole hour. I don't think we lost one person until two minutes next to the hour. So just testament to the level of engagement and interest that there is in this discussion. Thank you and stay tuned. Bye-bye. Thank you, guys. Thanks for listening. Please make sure to like and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform. We'd like to thank Bethany Sands for sound and editing, our creative team, Tanya Chaidez and Daniel Bustamante, talent producer, Jerry Cervantes, and our senior producer, Elianette Romero.